0: Welcome to Students and Scholars, a literary podcast accompanying the course English 2620 British Literature after 1800 at Utah Valley University. I'm Dr. Zan Kamek. This week we're discussing Jacqueline Roy's novel The Fat Lady Sings and all of its attendant themes such as race, gender and sexuality, and mental health. As a content warning we will be discussing things that relate to sexual assault, racial violence, and mental health. I am really excited to talk to you today about Jacqueline Roy's The Fat Lady Sings. This is a book that was published in 2000 um, and has been recently republished as part of the Black Britain Writing Back series for, for Penguin. Um, and it's one that I hadn't read until this semester. So it's one that is very new to me, but also I am so glad I had a chance to read this. Um, so so to kind of give you some context on the book, because we aren't going to be able to read the entire novel, um, though I will strongly encourage that you that you do, um, I'm going to kind of give you some, some breakdown of how this text works. We're going to start first by talking about summary, like the plot and the characters, and then we'll talk about the format of the text and then some of the major themes. So to start with, The plot of the novel is fairly straightforward with two protagonists, uh, both black women who meet each other in a temporary mental health facility. Um, The older woman is named Gloria, the younger woman is named Meryl. Um, Gloria is in her 50s. She is arguably there for more more of of grief counseling than than maybe um, mental health, but grief and mental health are kind of blended in her character quite beautifully. Um, but she is a 50, I think she's 54 year old black woman, um, who, who has lost the love of her life, Josie. And the second character is Meryl. And she is a younger woman. I think she is in her twenties. Um, and she has more severe mental health, um, issues. And she is there because she has had kind of a, a psychotic break. Um, that's the terms that the the mental health care providers use. Um, and she has a lot of different things that have built up and become traumatic to her and kind of culminate in this break. Um, she's experienced uh, sexual abuse as a child. Um, she had a, a father who was in prison for several years. And then when he came back, he was domineering and um, had some mental health issues of his own, undoubtedly. Um, and then she's in a marriage. Um, where Where the husband has been a little bit uh, insensitive to her. Um, and so she's here having having a lot of of mental issues that she's having to grapple with. Um, and so that's the characters, those are the characters. And throughout the plot, it's basically every other chapter, generally speaking, is from the different voice. So one chapter will be Gloria, the next chapter chapter will be Meryl. So that brings us to the format of the text. Now, again, you are kind of jumping right into the middle. I think we're starting with chapter nine. Um, but the, ch- the format of this is basically, like I said, um, Gloria gets a chapter and then Meryl gets a chapter. Gloria's chapters are tend to be the more easy to read. Um, she has a more straightforward, forward narrative line. She has two primary narrative modes. One is where she's actually talking to a tape recorder, um, which is basically the way that the mental health facility has asked her to um, talk about her feelings. Um, Instead of doing writing therapy, they basically say, we can't understand your writing, um, so we would like you to use a tape recorder instead so there are entries that are just from her tape recorder perspective, and you have to kind of notice those as they come along. The rest of them are kind of an inner narrator, um, inner narrative voice that's coming directly from Gloria. It's first person, and she's kind of telling you what she sees, what she's experiencing. And, um, apart from an occasional flashback, that's kind of where Gloria's narrative stays. And it's very straightforward. She's actually a really entertaining, um, hilarious character. Um, she, she, um, has this overabundance of joy and laughter and singing the title comes from Gloria um, being the woman who who sings all the time um, sometimes at inappropriate moments but uh, she has she kind of controls the narrative in a lot of ways and it's thanks to her that we kind of start to get traction uh, because Meryl starts out um, as a much more complicated and difficult, um, narrative to read. So Meryl has basically three formats with her narrative. And you'll notice this right away once you start reading it. She has kind of a traditional, like Gloria, inner narrative, first person narrative that goes on. And so that's her talking from her perspective and telling you what's happening around her. She also has a third person narrator. This is the, this is the text that's in italics. So the, the italics are basically, still Meryl, but it's told as if it's someone separate from her. Um, it's it's this perspective of a third person who's kind of watching what Meryl is doing, um, and it kind of shows the discord that's happening in Meryl's mind. And so sometimes you'll actually see those two different voices, the first person and the third person, even kind of contradicting each other and that sort of thing. And then the final... Uh, narrative format for Meryl is she actually has the handwritten journal entries. And those again are kind of where for her therapy, she's been asked to write in, in these notebooks. And you can see her, and, and so there is in the text kind of this handwritten font that is supposed to represent this. And so that is also kind of a manifestation of the inner, tor- inner turmoil of her of her mind. So that's the format of the narratives that we're getting. And once you kind of fall into that and understand that that's how those narratives are working together, it becomes a lot easier to process the story. So now I want to talk a little bit about the major themes of the novel. To my mind, there are three major themes. um, And the first one is about race. So this is one that is kind of upfront because the two protagonists are Black women. They both also come from um, Caribbean backgrounds. um, And race is not central to their narrative, but it is crucial to um, the kind of um, everyday experiences that they have. So particularly in Gloria's narrative, we have moments where she shows us, just through her normal voice, um, what it is to experience implicit bias, um, as well as systemic oppression as well as out outright racism on occasion. And it's not something that she dwells on. It's kind of sometimes peripheral, but in a lot of ways, it's really very, very visible in her narrative. And it's important to know those things and not to just pretend that they aren't part of who she is and who, um, how her narrative functions. We also see this in, in Meryl's story. We talk about um, the background for her story is that her father is actually um sentenced to prison for multiple years for murdering um someone that he did not actually murder um and so there is a an arrest scene where he is chased uh, and, and and brought down in her house in front of Merrill um and there's this idea that the system doesn't care for her or her family um and so race identity is part of the way that the system has been rigged against both Merrill and Gloria, um, and so it's important for us to draw attention to those, and important to notice that even though this novel was written um, and published in the for, in two thousand, how very very timely this is to discussions today. This is this is something that in the United States we are drawing more and more public attention to these issues, but these issues haven't been embedded in Britain and in the United States. Um, from the very beginning um, of these of these institutions and so when we see them in this novel it's not anything new um but it is our responsibility to grapple with them in this kind of present moment as well um so so it's very timely in that regard especially especially given where we are um, in our own culture um, with a recent upswing in violence against against black Asian and black um, Latinx bodies. Uh, not that these, again, didn't exist before, but we're seeing them kind of come to the foreground in instances like the murder trials um, for Derek Chauvin, as well as the um, the murders of obviously George Floyd and Dante Wright and Adam Toledo. So these are, these are things that uh, are really hard to grapple with, and sometimes we don't have the emotional kind of bandwidth to grapple with them. But they are generally moments where we can give ourselves a certain amount of space to be accountable for our own kinds of implicit bias. Um, as we all experience them, regardless of, of race, color, gender, anything like that, we all have implicit bias. Um, and by looking at this narrative and looking at how it is for any single individual to, to encounter implicit bias or systemic bias um, on the daily, it should, it should be something that we consider individual perspectives at the same priority level as kind of on the cultural scale of things. So race is definitely one of the major themes of this piece. I also want to talk about how gender and sexuality become part of this story. We have um, within The Fat Lady Sings, we have um, Gloria, who is who is gay and has a long-term relationship, a 20-year relationship with uh, with the love of her life, Josie. Um, but it is something that, um, even though they've been together since their, since their twenties, um, there's been a lot of uphill, uphill climb for them. Um, and, and that Gloria has experienced not only that, that, um, discrimination because, uh, because she doesn't fit into this heteronormative perspective, um, that, that she is gay, but that that her grief is also being kind of dismissed because of this relationship. So to give an example of that, I wanted to actually read a section from the novel. This is on page one fifty four, and this is a, a flashback where we understand for the first time um, we we've always known that Josie has died, um, but we're finally getting kind of some context on what's happening. And um, Gloria is 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 having a flashback where she realizes that. Um, there's been a big train accident, and that Josie is on that train. And she runs to the location. Um, she's frantic. Um, so she sees a police officer and says, um, "My my," and she says, "My friend is here. I, ha- I have I have to see them." Um, the officer says, "Please stand over there, madam. Someone will come and take your details in a moment. Please stand by. Stand back and try to stay calm." Someone comes by down to write her details. She says, "Is she a relative? No, a friend." And she nods her head. So the fact that Gloria doesn't feel comfortable saying, um, she's my wife, she's my partner, largely because she's been um, conditioned to understand that society looks at that relationship differently. She's been conditioned to understand that people will be dismissive, perhaps, of that relationship. Um, To continue on with the reading, she says, I wait, endless waiting for the news to come. And then they tell me she's still alive and they are taking her to the hospital. I get another cab. I arrive at the casualty department, but I can't get no further news. Only relatives, they say to me. Should I have said I'm a relative? They don't have no time to check. They tell you more if you say you're related. Why is it so hard for the world to understand that love is more than just a man and a woman thing? When she died, it was almost a day before I heard. No one bothered telling me the news. That moment where Gloria has to grapple with the fact that because society doesn't accept the way that her relationship works with with Josie um, leaves her on the outside of just even being informed of Josie's health, um, and that she is one of the last people uh, to be informed, even though she is one of the most important people in in Josie's life. Um, We see this also in the funeral and the interactions that uh, that. That Gloria has with Josie's family, um, Josie's family had basically um, disowned her because because they were uh, because Gloria and Josie were, were gay and they were in a relationship, and and to be you know perfectly candid, this is this is kind of a heavy and hard book to pick up. Sometimes there's a lot of emotional um, bandwidth that gets used to to talk about this, um, but I have to say that it was that passage that was the one that actually broke me. And I actually cried when I, when I read that. Um, Because I think we all have to face grief in our own ways. And so the fact that, that her grief, that Gloria's grief was not allowed the same space. um, I think, I think I broke a little bit inside, you know, a part of me got crushed by that. Um, And I think that even though the point of this book is not to be crushed under the heavy things. In fact, I find it actually a joyful and hopeful book um, at the conclusion. I think that we all have to confront heavy things in our own context. Um, and just something about, you know, I've experienced grief quite recently, not in the same way that Gloria is, but but I know that grief deserves its own space. Um and so so I think that this novel has so much um, capability to to articulate things about grief, mental health, that we all need to address at different times in our life. In a similar vein, um, Merrill is experiencing grief in a lot of different ways as well. She um, is experiencing grief for herself um, in terms of you know, her childhood is kind of taken away from her in a lot of ways. But um, reading between the lines, we learn that she has also lost a child. Um, that she that she was pregnant and lost a child that wasn't carried to term. Um, and so, so her loss again, I think, is something that um, isn't given space. I, I think oftentimes women's suffering, particularly when it comes to things like childbearing, um, is something that doesn't get a lot of of public space or narrative space uh, because it, it is a very, very difficult thing to experience and explore, um, but also because it's something that so few can experience directly on that level. We've seen this um, a little bit more recently, getting some, some narrative space um, with the uh, individuals like Chrissy Teigen and Meghan Markle sharing about their miscarriages and how that's a very specific type of grief. Um, but it's something that has has yet to be normalized to something that people can discuss. Um, and so so the fact that she is is um, there's there's a beautiful scene where both Gloria and Meryl are basically having their own small memorial service Um and it's a place where they two, um, where they are finally both allowed space to do their grieving, which I think is so important to what, co- what ultimately becomes a a hopeful and joyful conclusion to the narrative. Um, and so, obviously, all of this is wrapped up in the idea of mental health. That's kind of one of our third themes here. Um, mental health is something that we have had to confront as a culture, as an, as a as a global culture. Uh, this past year in ways that we never have before. Um, The fragility of mental health um, in a global crisis is something that um, I want to make sure is is never taken lightly. One of the things I find incredibly inspiring about this book is the way that Meryl and Gloria become each other's uh, supports for, for mental health. They are in a facility that's supposed to be taking care of their mental health, and I'm not saying that it isn't taking care of their mental health, but oftentimes the, the facility is more concerned about operating as a system, whereas uh, Meryl and Gloria are more interested in taking care of each other as, as human beings. Um, and I think that that is a huge message to take away from from this novel we are responsible for making sure that those around us are supported in the ways that they need. Um, asking, are you okay? And then truly following up with with investment in that individual. Um, mental health is something that we also need to make sure that we protect for ourselves. Um, the climax um, of the story comes uh, in some ways when uh, Meryl and Gloria choose to kind of escape the mental facility for a while, just for the day. Um, and they And they really do kind of confirm their own commitments to each other as well as to their mental health to take care of themselves and um Meryl actually realizes that she doesn't want to go back to her domestic situation um and the facility feels like that's not a a good call for her to make um because she has so many other changes happening right now um but we see at the very ending of the novel that that Meryl is is willing to actually take her mental health seriously and um make sure that she's taking care of herself versus what the, what the facility, um, exclusively, um, suggests. And so I think that's, that's why I find this such a joyful, uh, piece, um, is this kind of concluding element that we get here. Um, you know, spoiler alert, the women do, um, get released from the mental health facility. Um, and, it ends on this gorgeous paragraph that I think I want to just read to you in order to kind of convey that there's there's hope in this, um, even through this heavy, heavy uh, text. So um, this, is, this is from Gloria's perspective. She says, I watch Meryl's taxi disappear from sight. I'm on my own again. It's a strange thing going back to an empty house, but there's no sense in feeling dread about the future. It's coming anyway. And if on New Year's Eve, I have to get dead drunk to deal with it, then that's what I intend to do. Free it. Free to do it now. The curfew's come to an end. I go over all the promises I made myself. Be your age. Watch what you say. Don't talk too loud. Never skip. Act like, act ladylike. And I walk down the street full of decorum. The rain feels good against my skin. Never thought I could enjoy getting wet. And all the while I feel the sounds in my throat. Sounds of living. Sounds of joy. Like Josie's still beside me. And then I can't help myself; I open up my mouth and just sing and sing. Of course, the the novel had to end with the fat lady singing, right? Um, but um, that's that's how Gloria describes herself. But at the same time, this idea that that singing at the beginning of the novel for Gloria was an expression of grief; it was the only way she could cope with this loss of joy of Josie. But um, once she's released from the facility, it's it's singing. in in hopefulness, um, and in, in joy. Um, and I think that those are some of the most beautiful things that we can aspire to, even while we're dealing with the very, very real things, um, of race, um, discrimination, racism, uh, gender and sexuality discrimination with with trans rights being up uh, in legislation all the time and uh, discrimination against LGBTQ plus individuals um, and the mental health crisis that we're going through. These are all very real, very hard things, but there's always hope. There's always joy to aspire to, and that doesn't need to take lightly anybody's experiences, anybody's traumas. Um, and it and I don't mean that to be a kind of toxic positivity either, but it's it's something that we shouldn't lose sight of the potential for joy and the potential for hope. Um, And that's a really wonderful note to end our semester on. listening to this week's episode. I look forward to discussing these themes and more with you in class. Next, we have our final wrap-up episode when we talk about all of the things we've learned and discussed this semester.